Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Wa sallallahu wa sallam wa barak ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa anihi wa sahbihi ajma'in Allahumma aftah alayna bi hikmatika wa anshur alayna bi rahmatika ya zal jalali wal ikram Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barak ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi fi kulli lamhatin wa nafasin adada ma wasi'ahu ilmullah Ya alimu alimna min ilmika ma tarda bihi anna wa la tuakhizna bima ta'lamuhu minna يا حليم خلقنا بخلق الحلم وحققنا بحقائق العلم سبحانك لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العليم الحكيم رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحن العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد وأنه وصحبه أجوين الحمد لله رب العالمين السلام عليكم ما شاء الله I commend the few of you who have managed to come for braving this though. Allah bless you. It's wonderful to be with you all. And uh, alhamdulillah, you're true Edmontonians. Allah bless you. Alhamdulillah. Um, so we're continuing with our exploration of the marvels of the heart. And um, as we spoke about previously, just as a quick review of what we've gone through previously, we spoke about how it is the spiritual heart that is the essence of who each one of us is. And it is the spiritual heart that is addressed by God. It is the spiritual heart that is commanded and prohibited to do this and, and not to do that. And ultimately, it is the substance of our hearts with which we encounter the truth and which we come, with which we come to know the truth. We spoke about how the greatest purpose for which we have been given these hearts is to have knowledge. But we can only truly attain knowledge when our hearts are purified. Right? And so we spoke about the domains of the heart, the different, what Ghazali calls the armies of the heart. And that's going to be very important because as we're going to start laying the groundwork today and in the next time we meet, there is a battle for the soul of the human being. Right? And that of course takes place in the heart. But we spoke about the, how the heart has appetite or desire and how the heart has anger as well. And that these things must be regulated by intellect. And when they are guided by intellect, they go hand in hand for the benefit of the human being. That the noblest purpose for which the heart was created was to know, to know God, to know the truth, and to know reality. And we spoke about the veils of the heart, the things that prevent the heart from obtaining that knowledge. And also about the means of acquiring knowledge. And so we spoke a little bit last time about you know, conventional or traditional ways by which we learn, but also about inspiration, where knowledge is given just as a freely given gift of God. It's something that a person may strive and struggle strive against their lower selves until their hearts are purified and their hearts are polished and made pure and so that they can reflect reality perfectly. Right. And so we spoke about the example of the uh, Chinese and the Byzantines that Ghazali puts forward, how um, they're both set to task to polish a piece of architecture or to, to, to beautify a piece of architecture. 
And of course, the Chinese, they just focus, in this example, they just focus on polishing it and purifying it and cleaning it until finally it's more lustrous and brilliant than ever before. Right. And that's the example of the person who learns through inspiration. And of course, last time as well, we spoke about various references to inspiration in the Qur'an and the Sunnah. One of the most beautiful examples of this is a verse that I believe I neglected to mention last time. And Imam al-Ghazali does not mention this in the text. But God says towards the end of Surah Al-Baqarah, وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ وَيُعَلِّمُكُمُ اللَّهَ Right? And be conscious of God. Be mindful of God. Fear God. And God will teach you. Right? The meaning, of course, being that if you fear God, and if you... Fear God in the sense that, of course, God is not the object of your fear. God is the one you love, right? And God is not somebody who has ill intent towards you or who wants to harm you or punish you or anything like that. But rather, we fear the station of God. We fear the station of God and how we're so small and insignificant before God. Um, But that's how some of the scholars have understood it, right? That God Himself we love because God loves you more than anyone who ever loved you and shows greater mercy for you than anyone who ever showed mercy to you. But when you fear the station of God, that, recog- that is a reflection of profound knowledge of God. And it is out of that fear, of course, that you're moved to act in a way that's upright and upstanding, and marked with integrity and goodness. And so the person who acts in such a way, who strives against their own lowly desires, their desires for things that basically would be evil, right? To oppress other people, right? To take something from somebody else because you want it. Those who strive against their anger, unbridled anger, right? Being a tyrant at home with one's family, and so on. Those who strive to beautify their character, right? What taqullah? Be mindful, be conscious, be wary of God. And God will teach you. God will teach you knowledge that you did not have, right? And they speak of this as an ilmul ladunni, right? Which is knowledge that's directly from God. But again, as God says in the Quran, speaking about the khidr, right? وَعَلَّمْنَاهُ مِن لَدُنَّا ilma, And we taught him from our own selves knowledge, right? And khidr, of course, is, as many of you know, um, is the we first encounter him in the beautiful story in the Qur'an uh, where Moses is asked who is the most knowledgeable of people. And of course, as he is the prophet of God, he refers to himself, which is a fairly reasonable thing to believe. And that's not out of boastfulness or haughtiness or anything like that, but that's just because of his station. 
But then God indicated to him that in fact there was someone even more knowledgeable. Someone who, despite not being at the same rank as Moses, right, who wasn't as close or beloved to God as Moses, nonetheless he had knowledge that Moses did not have. And so there's that beautiful story, which we don't, we're not going to recount at this time. But God says about the Khidr, And we taught him from our own selves knowledge, right? And so this wasn't knowledge that Khidr spent years and years studying and, you know, going out and doing field work and, and, and researching and all sorts of things like that. This was knowledge that came directly from God. And of course, all of our knowledge is from God. But typically, we take it through particular means, right? And this was knowledge that was given without any means. And so you have that word, dunna, right? Or it's a few words actually. But from our own selves. And they take that word, ladunna, right? Our own selves. And they made it into al-ilmul ladunni, right? They turned it into an adjective, right? Which is like knowledge from our own selves, right? Knowledge from God Himself. Uh, and that's inspiration. And Imam al Ghazali speaks about many, many beautiful examples. Many, many beautiful examples about how this knowledge is even given to non-prophets. And he gives examples of Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman. And he gives uh, examples of many of the righteous people. And there are so many examples, so many of these examples. <clears throat> the clearest instance of that, of course, is true dreams, which nobody rejects. Right? But that's something that's known through experience, and not everybody has true dreams. But many of us may, for example, see something in a dream that we had no way of knowing. Perhaps it's something that will happen in the following day. Right? Sometimes people might say things, for example, like, I had a dream and I saw every step that I was going to take the next day. And those are realities. Like Those are things that people actually experience. Or intuition, right? Like the intuition of a mother for her child, which is one of the most powerful forces in existence, right? All of these examples are examples of a type of inspiration. And that's something that's very basic or essential. But also, of course, the prophets are given access to the unseen. The prophets are given access to knowledge that other people don't have. And of course, nobody has complete access, or nobody has complete knowledge of the unseen. But if God can give it to his prophets, then he can give parts of it to people who are less than the prophets, right? As he gave it to Khidr. But as he gives also to those men and women who refine their hearts and purify themselves, so that be, they be honored recipients of this knowledge. So that they deserve to receive that knowledge. And that's not beyond the realm of possibility. And that's not beyond the power of God. But there's lots of examples you can find within the text. And um, they're very beautiful examples. But uh, I, I don't think that, that we really need to go through them in detail right now. And... In large part is because they're illustrative of certain realities. But when we look at marvels of the heart, 
we're not just trying to marvel at special hearts, right? The point of marvels of the heart is to recognize the marvels within our own hearts, right? And when you see that these great believing men and women have access to these special treasures, one of the most powerful realities is that you likewise have access to all of those same treasures. You likewise have that capacity. But as we proceed through this text, we want to focus on how we can transform ourselves and transform our hearts so that we can receive that knowledge. So that there can be practical benefit. And so there's great benefit in looking through those stories and so forth, but they don't really need a lot of explanation. Um, but in any case, Imam al-Ghazali speaks about the heart. You know, one of the realities that inspiration shows us is that there's multiple doors into the heart. There's multiple entry points into the heart. And, of course, one of those entry points is the, uh, uh, are the senses. Right? And we spoke about that. Right? But there's also this other entry point, which is a direct stream from the knowledge of God. Right? But you have, like for example, you can think of it as, as a sort of river, right? You have this river, river which, I, I, again, I'm not an artist, but, you know, which is a large uh, flowing body of water. And into that river, you have multiple tributaries, right? These small streams, right? So those are the five senses. And you also might have, you know, what comes from underneath, like the, from the groundwater, right, which is inspiration. We spoke about that previously. But in any case, all of these, all of these sources of knowledge, all of them come together. And the riverbed is like your heart. Right? The riverbed is like your heart. The water is like this knowledge. And it comes from multiple sources, all of it accumulating in this beautiful river, or this beautiful body of water, Right? That's one example. But there's many examples, like the windows or the doors into a room, right? You look at this room that we're in right now, for example. There's the emergency exit, so don't bother that one. But there's the bathroom doors, there's the doors to the kitchen, don't go there either, right? But there's the door to the outside. And all of these are sources, right? All of these are sources. Probably the majority of you came in through the front door. I hope everybody came in through the front door. <laughs> but, you know, there's the vents at the top, right? You could have come in through climbing through the vents or something. Uh, you could have potentially come in through the emergency exit or whatever the case may be. Everything that comes into that room or to that building, for example, right? All of them are like guests. All of them are guests. And each one brings something special or something different, right? And so likewise, your heart has multiple doors. And the thoughts or the expressions or the inspirations that come into that heart, they're all guests. Guests of the heart. And of course you want to be careful. <clears throat> you want to be careful what you let into that heart. Or who you let into that heart. Well, whom. Anyhow. <clears throat> but you do want to be careful. Because some people, 
perhaps might be dangerous. Some people may be harmful or they may be toxic or whatever the case may be. And of course, all of those thoughts, anybody who comes to your door, right? Uh, you want to honor them and you want to treat them well. But everybody might merit a little bit different treatment, right? In the sense that some people perhaps, if, if, if they might be harmful or something like that, you know, perhaps that meeting might be very short. But likewise, when there are thoughts that come to the heart, inspirations or whisperings or whatever the case may be, likewise, they're all guests. And there's an adab or there's an etiquette. There's a way in which we have to interact with each and every one of these different guests that we have. And it's not productive in that sense to obsess about these ideas or to obsess about these inspirations or whatever the case may be or to get worried about them or to think, how could I think about this? Or, right? Just like if somebody comes to your door and announces you don't like, it's not really very productive to be like, like all worried and shaken up and saying like, how could this person come to my door or whatever the case may be? Well, this person's at your door and what are you going to do about it? Right? How do you respond? Sometimes people get certain thoughts and they're very distressing thoughts. And people don't know what to do with those thoughts. And people might be shocked that, I mean, I can't believe that I would think such a thing. And sometimes people obsess over those thoughts and, and, and mull over them over and over and over again until they almost go crazy. And sometimes people do go crazy over these things. And that's very dangerous. Those thoughts or those expressions that enter into the heart, we honor them and we welcome them. But each one calls for a little bit of a different etiquette. And each one needs to be received a little bit differently. Um, but we do have to be very careful about what we let into our hearts. And we do have to be very careful about those doors, right? So the heart, or sorry, the eye, for example, is a powerful door. And it's an amazing door. And we spoke about previously about the relationship between sight and insight. Right? And how your heart itself, it, it has vision. But insofar as we refer to that, like, you know, that capacity, your insight, we refer to it as vision, or we refer to it as a kind of, right, Sight. We don't refer it to like the smelling of the heart or the hearing of the heart, typically, or the feeling of the heart, right? Those are also senses. Those are also means by which you gain knowledge. But we refer to it as the sight of the heart or the insight of the heart, right? Because there's a powerful relationship, my point is, there's a powerful relationship between the eyes and the heart. And the eyes are one of the most profound doors into the heart. And so we have to be careful about what we let into through our eyes. The things that we see, the things that we watch. <clears throat> uh, God protect us. Uh, one of those stories that Imam al-Ghazali mentions, for example, is that a man caught sight of a woman who to whom he was attracted. 
And he just eyed her from the corner of his eye. But as he entered into the presence of Uthman ibn Affan, radiallahu anhu, the great caliph, the great successor of the Messenger of God, وسلم, he was reflecting on the charms of this woman. And so Uthman, as soon as this man entered, Uthman got very angry. And he said that, like, do you not know? And he didn't call out the man, right? Because the man wasn't saying this publicly. But the man was keeping this in his heart. He was just reflecting. As he entered into the presence of Uthman, he was possessed by the, the... He was captivated by the idea of the beauty of this woman. And Uthman got very angry and he said, Do you not know that the fornication of the eye is, is, is the lustful glance? And you better straighten out or else I'll set you right. And so the man was like very taken aback. And he said, Is there revelation after the prophets? And so Uthman responded that it was just an inspiration. Did you need something? Okay. <laughs> Saleh is like the bouncer here. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah. Saleh must be honored, otherwise he, 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 mashallah. <laughs> He's a scary individual. <laughs> but we love him. Anyhow. <laughs> Anyhow, um... Uh, look what you did to me, Saleh. I, can I lost my train of thought. Anyhow, <laughs> no, that's not Saleh's fault. Anyhow, right? So Uthman, right, he indicated that, that the fornication of the eye is this lustful glance, right? But the things that we allow into our eyes, ultimately we allow them into our hearts. And certain things, that looking at somebody inappropriately or looking at images that we shouldn't be looking at, or listening to things that we shouldn't be listening to, right? Slander, lies, deceit, and so forth. And, you know, touching things we shouldn't be touching. Touching people we shouldn't be touching. Touching in ways that are inappropriate. Whatever the case may be, all of these things are doors into the heart. They let in toxins into the heart. Things that destroy and bring death to the heart, ultimately. Then at the same time, there are also doors that we can let in beautiful things, right? But the vision of the heart, like the inner eye, right, as Ghazali refers to it. You know, in this other book, which was written in Farsi, uh, The Alchemy of Happiness, which is almost like a summary of the Ihya. Imam al-Ghazali mentions that the inner eye is even more sensitive than your outer eye, right? And, you know, your outer eye, you get just a little hair in your eye. Or you get a little piece of sand or whatever the case may be. Now, it's interesting, in an emergency department, um, you have people, for example, they, they might be welders or whatever the case may be. And they get a tiny little speck. A tiny little speck flies out from their welding and lands in their eye. 
And then they're, they're done. They're out for like, until that speck is removed. And if you look at them, all you can see is that their eye is all red and, and you know, they're, they're, they're watering and stuff like that. And, you know, you, you put them under, under the lights, for example, and, and, you know, you put a little dye and stuff like that so you can visualize. And Anyhow, through very, very um, close examination, you can finally find that little speck and then you just take it out. You just take out that little speck and then everything is okay. It's just a tiny little speck that nobody would notice. A tiny little speck, little piece of metal, is enough to really, like, just totally affect your outward vision. What about your heart? Your heart is even more sensitive, right? And we pour in toxins, and we pour in all of this. Like, that's enough to kill the heart. And God help us. We live in a very difficult time. But we can also let into into that heart beautiful things very beautiful things the beautiful things that you look at right like the loving gaze of your mother or your father or the loving gaze of your spouse or your children or looking at the honored house of God or looking at the beloved men and women of God, right? And all of you, inshallah, God willing, are amongst them. Looking at your beloved brothers and sisters. Listening to things that are beautiful. Listening to the Qur'an, to the recitation of the Qur'an. Listening to the words of the Prophet Listening to beautiful speech. Right? All of these things likewise are doors into the heart. But we have to be careful about those. So we get these little inspirations. And previously we spoke about ilham, right? We spoke about these angelic inspirations or these inspirations from God, right? And... um, We spoke about good inspirations. Now Imam al-Ghazali brings up another one, right? Which is wiswas. And wiswas is like a negative inspiration. Or it's a dark inspiration. And oftentimes these dark, heart, these dark thoughts and things like that, they come into our hearts and again, we might be, we might feel upset about that or possessed with that, whatever the case may be. But we're ultimately not responsible for those things. We're not responsible for these thoughts that just occur to us. We're not responsible even for these desires that occur to us. Right? And so it's related by Ibn Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhu that the Prophet, the Messenger of God sallallahu alayhi wa sallam has said, uh, from what he narrates, from his Lord. Right? 
وإن هم بها فعملها كتبها الله عنده عشر حسنات إلى سبعمائة ضعف إلى أضعاف كثيرة وإن هم بسيئة فلم يعملها كتبها الله عنده حسنة كاملة وإن هم بها فعملها, فعملها كتبها الله سيئة واحدة رواه البخاري ومسلم This is a beautiful hadith right? It's a beautiful statement of the Prophet But he said Indeed God has written all of the acts of goodness and evil And then he clarified them Right, so all actions of goodness and evil, all good and evil is something that has been written. It's something that's established. And then he clarified that, right? Of course, through revelation and through sound human intuition as well. So whoever inclines towards an act of goodness but does not perform it, God records it for him or for her with himself as a complete good action. Right? So just inclining, hem, the word here is hem. Inclining towards goodness is recorded for somebody as, as an act of goodness, an act of virtue. وَإِنْ هَمَّ بِهَا And if he or she inclines towards it, towards a good action, and then performs it. God records it for him or for her with himself as 10 good actions, up to 700 good actions, up to 700 times over, up to many times over. Right? So if a person inclines to something that's good, right? Like, for example, somebody inclines to an act of charity. Like, I would really love to um, contribute to uh, what's a charitable cause? Right, no self-promotion though, right? What did you say? Turn you on. Okay. So I, that didn't come from me. <laughs> and that didn't come from anybody affiliated with Tarjuma. But, oh, like, I mean, like for somebody who's poor on the street, or oh, Tarjuma is a good thing to give to too, right? <laughs> okay. Anyhow, but like, um, you know, somebody who's in need or whatever the case may be, you have a desire to give them something so that they have something to eat or they're able to feed their children for the night. Just having that desire, that inclination itself is a good action. If you actually do that good action, then that's written for you, that's recorded for you as if you did it ten times over. As if you gave that person ten times, or you gave ten other people like, I like that person. Right? Between ten times at the minimum, to seven hundred times, to many times over. Right? And that's the generosity, that's the all-encompassing mercy of God. That your beautiful action is multiplied many times over. And if he or she inclines towards an evil action, but does not perform it, God records it with himself as a complete good action. But isn't that amazing? Right? So if that person, if you incline to do something that's evil, Right? Like to take some money from somebody who needs it. Or to watch something that's inappropriate. 
or to slander somebody, or whatever the case may be. You have this inclination, this powerful inclination. But you don't act upon it. Then God records that as a complete good action. And if he or she inclines towards it and then performs it, God records it as a single evil action. Right? Well, that's very powerful. God records it as a single evil action. And there's a lot of rhetoric. I mean, like, there's a lot of beautiful language here as well. Because here God says, Katabahallahu Sayyatan Wahida. That God records it as a single evil action. Whereas previously, when he was speaking about the good actions that God records, it always said God records it with himself as a complete good action. Here it just says God records it as an evil action, right? Because, of course, the evil action is not attributed to God. The evil action is not befitting of God. But there also may be a sense in which God knows best, but if it's not written indahu, if it's not recorded with him as such, there's always a chance of forgiveness. There's always a chance that that evil action could be wiped away by the sincere contrition or, or penitence. You know, by that person working to set things right. That evil action isn't firmly established because it can always be taken away. And likewise, when he was referring to good actions, he said a complete good action, hasanatan kamila. But when he refers to an evil action, he says, sayyatan wahida, one evil action. Because, of course, the evil is never. Completion is an, as, uh, is, an as, is an attribute of perfection, right? And an evil action can never be perfected. In any case, that's a beautiful hadith. But one of the things that's very important here is that the Prophet ﷺ refers to hum, refers to inclinations, and how evil inclinations are not punished. And our scholars speak about the levels of intention. So one of the scholars, one of, he was a poet, I guess. Anyhow, he says, مَرَاتِبُ الْقَصْدِ خَمْسٌ هَاجِسٌ ذَكَرُوا فَخَاطِرٌ فَحَدِيثٌ نَفْسِ فَاسْتَمِعَا يَنِيهِ هَمٌ فَعِزْمٌ يَنِيهِ هَمٌ فَعِزْمٌ كُلُّهَا رُفِعَتْ Right? That the levels of intention are five. Hajis, they mention hajis. Okay, so we'll write those down. So we have hajis, which, which we call a whim. And then we have Hajisun Dakaru, Fahatirun Fahadithun Nafsi Fastamiya. so Khatir is a notion. Sorry, that looks like an H. A Hoshin. Uh, it's actually a notion. Notion or Khatir. 
then you have hadith nafs which is deliberation. And then you have an inclination, which is hem. And then you have resolution, which is azm. So he says, فَخَاطِرٌ فَحَدِيثُ النَّفْسِ فَاسْتَمِعَ Right, so, so uh, then you have the notion and then deliberation. So listen closely. It is followed by an inclination and then resolution. All of them are lifted up. Except for the very last, in which a sin may be recorded or a sin takes place. So this is very fascinating because the whim, right, a whim is just a passing thought. It's a passing thought that doesn't take, it doesn't take its position in the lower self. So it's a passing thought of goodness or evil, right? It's not something that even remotely you think you have even thought about doing, yeah. I mean, for example, like, I don't know, like just a passing thought, for example, to renovate Amber Cafe, right, for example. Now, it's very beautiful, of course, but like just, just the passing thought, right? Um, it's probably something that didn't occur to most of us. Or a passing thought to renovate the house of your brother or your sister, right? It's probably something that never occurred to you, right? That's, that's the whim. Then you have the notion, right? The notion is when this thought takes, it takes its place in the lower self. And so now this becomes a thought that you could think about yourself doing, like you could perhaps imagine yourself renovating the building or whatever the case may be, right? But you don't actually make a plan to do so. The third level is hadith nafs which is deliberation. hadith nafs literally means the speech of the self. Which is basically where you're having this dialogue with yourself. Like, should I do it or should I not do it? Now you're actually deliberating about doing this thing. You're thinking about whether or not you should do it. And neither side actually at this point is, is, is um, stronger. Both of these options, you're kind of weighing the pros and the cons. right? Like if I renovate the building, then I'll have to take time off of work for the next few weeks. And... Uh, but it'll be a good thing, it'll be a nice thing to do for the community, or whatever, right? Like, you're weighing the pros and cons, right? Then you have an inclination, is hem. <clears throat> and hem is when your heart inclines towards a particular thing, but hasn't resolved to do it yet. And so that's what's referred to in the hadith. Whoever has a hem towards something that's good or a hem towards something that's evil, an inclination, right? Meaning that's something I would like to do. Um, 
And then the last thing is to make a firm resolution to do it. Meaning that you're actually going forth to actually, you know, start renovating the building or whatever the case may be. So, so those are the different levels. And again, from the mercy of God is that even at the level of hem, right, although you're not sinful for that, but if you have a good hem, if you have a good inclination, you're rewarded for that. You're rewarded for your good inclination. And if you have an inclination towards evil, that's not something for which you're held accountable. Right? As long as you don't resolve to act upon it. But once a person makes a resolution to do something, right, and they start going out, right, and they embark upon this path, for example, right, at that point they are culpable. And so, for example, if somebody were, I don't know, going to, uh, I don't know, what's, what's something bad that somebody might do? <laughs> Let's say somebody were going to, um, I don't know, go gambling, right? right? Which isn't a good thing to do. That's not the best example. But anyhow, right? or somebody were going to drink alcohol. Right? And somebody set out to, on their way to the bar. right? And they make every intention. But on the way, they have a flat tire. And... You know, somebody, you know, they're, they have to replace their tire, whatever the case may be, and they have to call AMA or whatever the case may be. And so, as a result, they don't end up going to the bar. But just because they made that firm resolution, they're still sinful, they're still culpable for that. But if they just incline towards that and then they don't act upon it, then that's something else. Even if they incline towards it and they haven't made a plan yet, and then they get distracted by something else and they get busy with something else. Right? Which is a profound mercy. It's a profound mercy from God. So he speaks about these different inspirations that people can get. And some of these inspirations, of course, are positive, as we mentioned, and some of them are negative. And the example that Imam al-Ghazali gives, because ultimately all of these all of these inspirations come from God. Right? All of these things are created by God. And everything is created by God. And good and evil are also created by God. But nonetheless, some of these inspirations come from particular means. Right? So the means by which you receive good inspirations is by angels. And the means by which you receive evil inspirations is by demons, by these shayateen. And the example of that is like a fire. Right? So you see a fire that's burning. And from that fire you see light. But from the smoke that comes out of that fire you also see that the ceiling is blackened. Right? So the light is like one inspiration and the blackening of the ceiling is like another inspiration. But you can see that they have different sources. Even though that ultimately the source is the same. Like ultimately they come down to the same thing. Right? Ultimately God creates the fire and God creates the smoke. 
And all of them are the same phenomena. Right? Does that make sense? Anyhow, um, so when we speak about the capacity to receive good, we call that tawfiq, or providence. And we speak the capacity to receive evil inspirations. That's called khidlan, or it's called uh, igwa. Uh, it's called desertion or deception, right? So we can write that here. Oh, wait. Oh, I erased that. Anyhow. <laughs> Wait, this is supposed to be green, but it's writing as red. <laughs> okay, I'm very confused. Like, is it? I don't understand why this. No, no, but look, the the bum is green. Uh, this is very strange. Anyhow, yeah. So that was an act of deception. I don't <laughs> this is a demon's pen. <laughs> Just kidding. Anyhow, uh, okay. Angel and demon, right? We have ilham, and we have wiswas. Now we have tawfiq, which is provenance. And we have khidlan, um, which is desertion. Right? Tawfiq is something that God gives you, and khidlan is also something that God gives you. Right? And so what is tawfiq? What is providence? Does anybody know what tawfiq is? Does anybody know what tawfiq is? How do you explain tawfiq? Well, that's, a, that's a real question. People can contribute answers. Yes, sir. MashaAllah, that's nice. That's, that's, that's a good answer. I, I think tawfiq is a word that I often use without really thinking about it. Um, does anybody have any other answers? Well, anyways, our, our brother Ibrahim gave a very beautiful answer. Tawfiq, it comes from wa-fa-qaf. Right? It comes from this root that has this sense of things being in accordance with one another. Right? And so when you're given tawfiq, your action is in accordance with divine pleasure. Right? Your action falls in line with what is pleasing to God. But there's a few aspects here. Right, so for example, when um, so this is this is 
What should our friend be named? Somebody give me a name. It has to be a creative name. What did, did somebody say? Sorry? Frank? Frank? Okay, I guess he's Frank. I don't, I don't know. I, I'm not really that impressed with that name. But <laughs> Frank, like Frank has to have, Frank the something, right? Frank has to have a title. Frank the... Oh, Frank the Third. Okay, that's good. Frank, okay, Frank the Third. Okay, I was thinking more like Frank the Builder or something, but like Frank the Third works too. Okay, Frank the Third. Frank the Third. He has lots of capacities, right? Like he has he has like big muscles, mashallah. And um, he has like knees that work, right? And 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 legs and stuff like this. And he has a big brain. Like he, he, he's, he's fully, he has full capacity. He makes good decisions. And he has a heart. Right? Okay, anyways. Frank has all of these capacities. He has all of these abilities at his disposal. Right? And so if Frank wants to do something that's good, or he wants to do something that's evil, he has all of these capacities to do things. Right? Like, for example, he wants to go and... Do something charitable for somebody else. Right? Frank has all these capacities to do so. He has health and free time. Right? Those things, they are a result of providence. Right? We translate tawfiq as providence. Right? So those things, they are something that's, they are from a person's provision and they are the capacities that a person is given and so on and so forth. But they're not primarily what we refer to when we're referring to Sorry. Yeah, they're not primarily what we're referring to when we refer to tawfiq. Tawfiq is in the moment, right? So when you're actually giving the money, or whatever the case may be, when Frank III is actually doing the charitable act, like he's helping somebody with their stalled car. People don't help each other with stalled cars anymore because everybody assumes everybody else has phones or whatever the case may be. Ten years ago, if you saw somebody stopped on the side of the car, then you'd stop and you'd help them out. We don't do that anymore because now everybody will call their um, mother or father or son or daughter or girlfriend or boyfriend or husband or wife or whatever, right? So no, nobody... Anyways, back in the day... Before you guys were born, <laughs> back in the day, if you saw a car on the side of the road, you would stop and say, well, can I help you out with that? Did you need a boost to your battery or something like that? Right? Anyhow, so there's, there's that, the tawfiq is in the moment where you're actually enabled to do something. Right? You have these prior capacities. These prior capacities, all of these things that, that resonate so much about, actually I wrote, I drew the heart on the right side. It actually should be on the left side. Anyhow, um, all of these things that are so obvious about Frank III, that he has these amazing knees and this huge heart and uh, bulging muscles and, uh, uh, well, a kind of pathetic brain. Anyhow, right, all of these things about Frank III, that's why he's morally responsible, is because he has these capacities. But tawfiq refers in the moment to being actually able to do that good action. Right? So the ability that God gives you when you're on your way to help out your friend and when you're actually like connecting the batteries and so on and giving it a boost and so forth, that's your tawfiq, right? Because it might be, again, that you make a firm resolution to do something good, but then you're prevented, right? Like, for example, you want to give your friend a boost, but, you know, your car itself, it, it, um, 
it loses the battery, the battery runs out, right? And so you're never able to make it that way, right? And likewise for evil actions, right? Like you, maybe Frank III had a negative turn in his life and now he's going to the bar, right? His khidlan, the debasement of Frank III, would be his God giving him the ability to finally fulfill that evil action, Right? And if he's somehow prevented, if he's somehow prevented from fulfilling that evil action, despite his capacity to do so, right? Then even that is a small mercy. Anyhow, does that distinction make sense? Right. Okay. So that's the meaning of la hawla wa la quwwata illa billah. That thing which we always say, right? La hawla wa la quwata illa billah. That there is no power nor strength except with God. Uh, because as this great scholar of Aqidah, Imam al-Tahawi, this early scholar of Islamic creed, he says, La hilata li ahad, wa la, no, la hilata li ahad, wa la, uh, I don't remember exactly what he says. وَلَا تَحَوُّلَ لِأَحَدٍ He mentioned something else. وَلَا حِيلَةَ لِأَحَدٍ And then he says something. وَلَا تَحَوُّلَ لِأَحَدٍ عَنْ مَعْصِيَةِ اللَّهِ إِلَّا بِمَعُونَةِ اللَّهِ Right? That nobody has any, can make any change or any plan or any ruse to avoid disobeying God except by the by the assistance of God that's what la hawla means that there's no power there's no power to avoid evil except by by the um, by the assistance of God wala quwwata yani wala quwwata ala iqamati ta'ati Allah illa bi tawfiqillah ta'ala right he says and there's no strength to establish the obedience of God or devotion to God, except by divine providence, by the tawfiq of Allah. Right. So that's the difference. In other words, a person is always between good and evil. And we have these capacities and we make these decisions and these decisions are, in, are informed by our inspirations. And ultimately the good or the evil that we do, all of it is regulated by divine providence and by God's destiny for each and every one of us. And so we can add here good and evil. But you have these sets of pairs. And there are many references to this in the Qur'an. And in the Sunnah of the Prophet As God says, وَمِن كُلِّ شَيْءٍ خَلَقْنَا زَوْجَيْنِ And from everything we have created pairs. Right? And all of existence, all of creation revolves around, the, around this axis. Right? By these good and evil inspirations. 
God says in the Quran, الشيطان يعيدكم الفقر ويأمركم بالفحشاء والله يعيدكم مغفرة منه وفضا. Right? Satan promises you, uh, uh, Satan promises you poverty, and he commands you towards evil. Right? Because, of course, the end of any evil action is regret and remorse, which is the greatest form of poverty. And God promises you forgiveness. Forgiveness from His own self. And an abundance of good. Right. So again, you have these inspirations that come from Satan, and these inspirations that come from the angels. But in this case, in this verse, the angels aren't mentioned. And these inspirations of goodness, again, are attributed to God Himself. Right. Um, in the hadith, it's related by Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As from the Messenger of God, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that he said, إِنَّ قُلُوبَ بَنِي آدَمَ كُلَّهَا بَيْنَ إِسْبَعَيْنِ مِنْ أَصَابِعِ الرَّحْمَانِ Right? And then the Prophet said, Ya Musarrif al Qulubi Sarrif Qalbi ala Ta'atik. Right? And that's related by uh, Muslim and Ibn Majah on the authority of Anas ibn Malik and, and Nawas ibn Samma'an. Right? That the Prophet said, Indeed, the hearts of the children of Adam, all of them, are between two fingers from the fingers of the All-Merciful. Like a single heart that he turns however he wills. And so then the Prophet ﷺ said, O God, O you who turns the hearts, turn my heart to your obedience. And Umm Salama, the beloved wife of the Prophet ﷺ, she said that the most frequent prayer that the Prophet ﷺ used to make was, Ya al Qulub, Thabbit Qalbi ala dinik. You who turns the hearts, establish my heart firmly upon your way, upon your faith, upon your religion. And that's related by Imam at Tirmidhi. So the two fingers of the All Merciful obviously don't refer to two fingers like I have, right? Or anybody in creation has. This language is very powerful and it's very meaningful. But it's not to be taken literally in the sense that we typically understand fingers. But reflections of these two fingers, whatever the two fingers of the All Merciful refers to, reflections of that is that the hearts constantly turn between these inclinations to good and inclinations to evil. Right. And so God asked, or the Prophet ﷺ asked for constance in that, for steadfastness. And we spoke about this hadith previously. Right? But all of these are manifestations of God's providential concern. All of these are manifestations ultimately of His mercy. Likewise, it's related from Abdullah ibn Mas'ud that 
he said that the Messenger of God وسلم, said, مَا مِنْكُمْ مِنْ أَحَدٍ إِلَّا وَقَدْ وُكِّلَ بِهِ قَرِينُهُ مِنَ الْجِنِّ وَفِي رِوَايَةٍ وَقَرِينُهُ مِنَ الْمَلَائِكَةِ قَالُوا وَإِيَّاكَ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ قَالَ وَإِيَّايَ إِلَّا أَنَّ اللَّهَ أَعَانَنِي عَلَيْهِ وَأَسْلَمَ فَلَا يَأْمُرُنِي إِلَّا بِخَيْرٍ right? That there's not, not a single one of you There's not a single one of you except that there has been appointed for him or for her a companion from amongst the jinn and a companion from amongst the angels. In one narration it has both. And so they said, and you, O Messenger of God? And he said, and me. Except that God has assisted me, has helped me against mine, against my companion from the jinn. And so he has submitted Literally, he's literally become Muslim. But he submitted. And he doesn't urge me to do anything except for goodness. Right? And so again, we have this idea of these inspirations of goodness and inspirations of evil. Each and every one of these, each and every one of us. But what's the reality of the Prophet ﷺ having received this assistance? What does that assistance mean? Right? In other words, the Prophet ﷺ had so perfectly submitted himself to God and so perfectly refined himself and beautified his character that he did not incline to the evil things of this world. Right? There was no fertile ground for this demon to you know, establish himself or to sow the seeds of evil. Because the Prophet ﷺ had no inclinations towards that. He had perfected himself. And so likewise, it's within the capacity of human beings, of other people, even if they're not prophets, to refine themselves and to purify themselves to the extent that Satan, that these demonic influences have no firm foothold in our hearts. Just as in we follow the Prophet And that's related by Imam Muslim. There are other references to this in the Qur'an. And perhaps we'll have opportunity to visit them in our next, the next time we meet, bi ta'ala, when we'll finish up to um, the end of this particular chapter upon which we've embarked. But again, the idea we wanted to introduce today is that there are multiple influences and multiple inspirations and multiple expressions that compete for supremacy over our hearts. And in fact, there is a battle for each and every one of our souls. And so all of the things that we spoke about previously, all of the armies of the heart, anger and appetite and good character. All of these things must be put in their right places. All of these things must be refined so that ultimately we can overcome these evil inspirations of, uh, upon our souls. Ultimately we can overcome these evil influences that try to steal us away. And ultimately we can fulfill the beautiful purposes for which each and every one of our hearts was created. And so that's the stage we want to set for the next few classes, inshallah. Well, the next class, and then the next session by which we 
um, continue our exploration of marvels of the heart. Because, of course, the next session that we meet will be the last for, for this particular iteration, and then we'll have marvels of the heart part three, Vyadinahi Tarana. Are there any questions? Or Yes. Sorry? Which word? Oh, Khidlan. Um, and and what, what specifically did you want me to expand upon about that word? Sorry, the definition? Uh, I, I, I can't quite hear you. Um, Right. So how does khidlan relate to evil? Is that, is that kind of the question? So that's a really good question. That's a very beautiful question. We spoke a little bit about tawfiq. And the evil twin brother or sister of tawfiq is khidlan. Right? And so just as tawfiq is in the moment... Being able, as a Tahawi, Tahawi lived in the third century uh, after the Hijrah. Anyways, as, uh, as he defines, right, Tawfiq is in the moment being able to do good. Khidlan is in the moment being able to do evil, right? And that is a difficult topic to open up because it relates to good and evil, it relates to uh, divine justice and theodicy. Right, relates to a whole number of topics. But as we understand from what God and His Prophet ﷺ have conveyed to us, God ultimately creates all good and all evil. And all good and all evil exist in the world by His wisdom and by His will. Right? And so ultimately, when I do something that's wrong, yes, ultimately, like, I'm responsible for that. Or I am responsible for that, but ultimately, it's God who creates that action. Right? And it is His creation of that action that is khidlan, which is like a debasement of me. Right? Because in doing that, in harming my own self and so forth, ultimately it's God who creates that. And of course, that's marked by His wisdom, right? God has a profound purpose for creating that. And that wisdom might be apparent to me. It might not be apparent to me until much later in my life. It might not be apparent to me as long as I'm alive at all. But everything that happens in the world has wisdom. And everything that happens in the world is part of this profound cosmic drama, right? which is the secret of destiny, right? And that's a very big topic. But of course, God always calls us to Himself. And God always calls us to goodness and calls us to uprightness. And calls us to what ultimately is of benefit to us and to our brothers and sisters and our families and our communities and so on. And it is only when we oppress our own selves and go against those calls 
against those higher calls. It's only when we choose to do evil that God doesn't prevent us from that. God doesn't prevent us from that in this world, but there are consequences for our actions. There are consequences for our choices. Does that help? Or is there, is there, do you have follow-up questions? Right. Okay. Is, is that helpful? Okay. Uh, oh, yes, ma'am. You, you talked about the five levels of intention. And for um, acts of evil, um, we're, we're only held accountable for actually committing the act. Well, that's a very profound question. Um, so, as I understand, the question is that we spoke about the five levels of intentionality. I mean, I'm just repeating the question so that everybody can hear, but also so that if I, if I misconstrue your question, you can correct me. And we spoke about how it's only resolution for which a person would be culpable in the sense of having committed a wrong action, right? Resolving to do evil, right? So a person might not necessarily complete the evil action, but they've resolved to do so, right? And, you know, maybe they get prevented for some other reason, but, like, if they had, if they could have, they would have done it, right? So a person is only culpable for that. But those other four levels of intentionality, insofar as our thoughts create our realities, and our thoughts shape who we are, and in a certain sense, we're deeply informed by our thoughts. How do those, how do we reconcile these two, these two ideas? That a person is only culpable for their strong resolution to do something that's wrong, but at the same time, that like these negative thoughts also play a huge role in forming who we are. Right? Is that is that fair? Um, Part of it, and God knows best, as I understand, is that, for, for one thing, it, it's not only the action itself that's culp- for which we're culpable, but also it's, it's, it's resolving to do it. And when we choose to ruminate about certain things that are negative, negative thoughts, or negative ideas, or negative feelings, or things like that. For example, certain expressions of things that, that aren't seen, but like things like arrogance, or jealousy, or uh, covetousness, or, or whatever the case may be, like all of these things, right? There's no physical action that's associated with them. There might be physical actions that are outward expressions of them, right? Like if I'm jealous of Faisal's hat... I, I'm like one of the expressions of that might be I just take it off his head and then put it on my own head and then run away, right? 
But that itself isn't the jealousy. That's stealing, thief, thievery, right? But the jealousy itself, there's no actual outward expression of that. And likewise, some of these negative ruminations, when we choose to think about things that are evil, and we choose to plot and so forth, well, plotting itself, I would say, is that resolution, right? Is making a resolution towards evil, right? And so that is something for which we're culpable. But even reflecting on things that are wrong, right? Or thinking about things that are wrong, right? And choosing to, again, like certain thoughts, they come to us, right? It, it, it is a difficult, it is a difficult, uh, I suppose you could say, balancing act in the sense that, you know, like they say, what, what do they say? Don't think, don't think of an elephant or whatever they say? Right? What is it? What, what is it? I don't know. If I say, don't think about it, I say, if I tell you all, don't think of an elephant, right? What are you thinking about? An elephant, right? And so if I have a negative thought, right? Like if, if a negative thought comes to somebody that, you know, or if a negative thought were to come to me that um, I want to have a negative relationship with somebody outside marriage, right? Sometimes that might just be a thought. But if I get like very like agitated by that, and I'm sorry, I'm not answering what, what your, your question right now. I'm, I'm not sure that I can answer anybody's question. But like, I'm not like really addressing your question, I suppose. Um, but something peripheral to that. It's like sometimes that thought, like, like sometimes that thought can really distress us. And then we're like, I, I, I have to stop thinking about that. I have to like close off that. I, 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 can't, I can't do that. But then like the more we do that and the more flustered we get in that sense, the more we just obsess about that one thought. Right, which is a very unhealthy process. Right? And and certain negative thoughts that people have, people obsess about them until it becomes like literally pathological. Like literally it becomes like a disease. Like disease thinking, right? Um, and that often relates to anxiety and things like that. Um But at the same time, we also have volition in the sense that we also have the ability to choose certain things to reflect upon. And we also have the ability to choose to reflect on other things, right? And so certain ruminations, we're also culpable for those. And certain characteristics of the heart, which is sort of related to those sorts of ruminations, and which also take place in shaping our realities and the realities of our character those also, we may be responsible for them. But at the same time, it might not be possible for me, like if I struggle with arrogance or ego, that might not be something I can just will away. Like I can just decide, I'm not going to be arrogant anymore. Or I'm not going to be arrogant today. That's not something I have the capacity to do. Yet nonetheless, I'm responsible for that. I'm responsible for my arrogance. So again, there seems to be a contradiction here because like, I can't, I can't decide not to be arrogant. I didn't even decide to be arrogant. I just am arrogant. And yet at the same time, I'm responsible for being arrogant. Like, how is that possible? How can I be responsible for something I can't choose to do or not to do? And that's a big burden. But it makes sense that you're responsible for it because if I'm arrogant 
And if I see myself as better than other people, then I can hurt other people. Right? If I see somebody as beneath me, that my rights are more important than theirs, that the things I want are more important than the things they need, for example, I can put people down, I can oppress people, I can harm people, whether that's family or that's somebody in the community or whatever the case may be. So there's a lot of negative aspects of it. The thought itself, the ideas, the arrogance itself is odious and blameworthy because we have no worth whatsoever if not for the grace of God. Right? And we have no intrinsic value except for the value that God places within us. All of the goodness that we have is a divinely given blessing. But arrogance is almost like the end of something. I mean, your personality is what comes to you naturally without you having to refine yourself or work on yourself, right? Like somebody might be naturally very... or so, Sorry, somebody... Some people might be naturally very giving and very like uh, service-oriented and so forth. Other people might not be not so much. Like myself, I'm not very much like that naturally. But certain people, for, for, for instance, despite not having that characteristic, they can work on themselves and they can train themselves so that they become more service-oriented. So it is with, with, with some of these negative thoughts or negative ideations or negative aspects of our character that we might not be able to control the end aspect of that. But there's a bunch of work that we can do so that we can work on setting our hearts right. And a big part of that is on, it comes back to thought itself, right? To reflection. To reflecting on the blessings that we've been given. To gratitude and so forth. But a big part of that as well is to do actions. Actions that are reflective of a lack of arrogance or humility, right? Actions that are reflective of humility. Again, service. Serving people that perhaps, for whatever predilection you somehow believe that this person is, is beneath you or whatever the case may be. Serving those people. Because again, your actions are doorways into your heart. And that itself is transformative. Uh, and so on. I mean, that's, that's a very big topic. But I suppose in addressing the very insightful comments that you shared, my understanding is that some of these thoughts, some of the thoughts upon which we choose to ruminate and we choose to entertain as perpetual guests within our hearts, we are responsible for making those choices. And some reflections of our hearts that are purely internal, we're also responsible for those. I mean, they might take place as certain reflections of our character and so forth. And they do shape our reality, as you mentioned. And so having passing thoughts or passing inclinations, those in and of themselves, we're not culpable for those. But when we let them take root in ourselves... And when we don't do anything about them and when we don't reflect upon what's, how we're being transformed by these particular guests, then that can be very dangerous as well. And that can lead to something for which we're responsible. That can lead to a situation for which we are culpable. Right? I, I don't know that that answers your question really, but 
perhaps you have other uh, insights to share, or perhaps you have other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very beautiful. And like we said as well, um, you know, the Prophet ﷺ spoke about receiving inspirations from demonic inspirations and angelic inspirations. And the reason that his inspirations, his demonic inspirations, were only inspirations towards goodness is because demonic inspirations could have, evil inspirations could have no foothold in his beautiful heart, right? And that is because he refined himself, sallallahu alayhi wa and beautified himself, sallallahu alayhi wa and beautified his heart, which each of us can do, right? And that goes to much more difficult work in terms of regulating, regulating the guests of our, of our hearts and how we receive these inspirations that we don't even know where they come from but also what we allow to stay there and how we interact with everything that comes our way, right? And there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot that can be done and a lot of training that we can do in that regard, but, but that's beyond the purview of where we're at right now. So thank you for sharing that. I think we're like way over time. So if anybody has any other questions or comments or concerns, inshallah, we can take them up uh, privately and uh, we can also... Uh, I don't know, there's some email address that you can send uh, questions to. Uh, was it marvel.tarjuma.ca? Uh, we can try to f- uh, figure out how to answer those questions, either on a private basis or perhaps we'll take it up in the next classes uh, as God wills be Allahi ta'ala. Allahumma wafiqna lima tuhibbuhu wa tarlah maj'alna min abidika su'ada wa amitna ala kalimatil huda alimna ma yanfa'una wa wafiqna lil'amali bima alamtana bih. 
واجعل ما نحن فيه خالصا مخلصا لوجهك الكريم يا رب العالمين اللهم اجعل تجمعنا هذا تجمعا مرحوما وتفرقنا بعده تفرقا معصوما لا شقيا منا ولا محروما وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد وآله وصحبه أجمعين والحمد لله رب العالمين